Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. So many people jump in, treat it like a hobby, and guess what? There's a saying, if you treat it like a hobby, it's going to pay you like a hobby. If you treat it like a job, it's going to pay you like a job. So treat it like a job in a business and it will definitely make your life a hell of a lot easier and it'll help you scale. Welcome to the best ever show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Ross MacArthur. Ross is joining us from Claremont, Florida. He is the co-founder of Follow the Deal Investments, where they focus on 20 to 150 unit apartment complexes in the Midwest, specifically in Indiana. Ross's portfolio consists of multiple multifamily properties in Indiana. Ross, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? Very good. And I should have said this in the pre-stuff, but you got a voice for this, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, no, thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. It's our pleasure to have you. Ross, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised in Michigan, so I'm a Midwest kid. Uh, we were talking about Ohio a few minutes ago. So born and raised there, went to college there, but like most people, decided to chase some money and go into the corporate life. And that took me out West in the outside sales role. And I definitely argue that corporate sales is one of the best jobs for a young professional. It just gives you a lot of flexibility. If you're really good at what you can do, you make a lot of money. So definitely chased that and went into a startup company after that, which started to scratch my itch for entrepreneurship, which a lot of those things I learned back then I applied today. And then I eventually ended up in Florida for the last 12 years. I moved on to a large software company for really the better part of my career. So my investing side though, started just over four years ago. Most people, I grew up with at least an interest in it, but I didn't have anybody around me who did real estate, to be honest with you. I didn't even have any friends that were really realtors or family members that are realtors. So I literally just thought real estate was interesting and neat. And you'd see people transform these buildings or you talk to somebody, they would own a bunch of things. And I just found it always intriguing. So I sat on the sidelines like most people until my mid thirties. I'll shoot. Some people do it right away. I waited quite a while and I decided eventually that I was going to jump in and 
We decided that in the Midwest, just kind of a comfort. We knew that type of area. We knew the type of people. And the other thing was barrier to entry. And I think you know that better than anybody. A lot of your listeners know that it's a lower cost of barrier entry. So we decided on Indiana for a lot of reasons. And we picked Indianapolis, but we actually don't own anything in Indianapolis of all things. So we decided anything within a couple hours away, we would entertain looking at. And we really targeted just two to eight unit properties back then. Got into off-market stuff and started an investing career. So we got our first property January 2020. Typical MLS buy, 25% down, scariest thing I've ever done, Ash. Honestly, it kept me up at night, which is funny looking back then. And now we're buying multi-multi-million dollar properties <laughs> and raising a bunch of capital. But that was scary back then. Ross, what was that first property in 2020? It was a four unit property. I think we bought it for about $170,000 and a small tertiary market in Indiana. So about as blocking and tackling as you get. Did you raise money for that or did you just do traditional financing? We did. We did traditional financing, no money raised on that. That concept scared me for a long time, which we'll get into, I'm sure, later. But it was traditional. So one of the benefits to working up the corporate radar is we did pretty good for ourselves, my wife and I. She works as well. So we had enough money saved to go in and put a 25% down. And then eventually, as we grew, we tapped into some creative financing things, or not even really creative financing, other ways to access your wealth, like 401k loans and HELOC loans and things like that when we started to scale. Because this was four units, I'm assuming lending was not a big challenge. Not at all. Actually, to be honest with you, it's funny when I think back then, I didn't know who to call. I don't know. I've never bought an investment property before. I was like, well, it was essentially like a Quicken Loans type of mortgage broker. So... I called up and it was the most painful thing I've ever done. Eventually, as we get into it, I learned about small credit unions and localized banks who kind of specialize in investment properties. But back then, it was super painful and it was just dialing somebody on the phone to some random person in a call center. <laughs> I get it. I think you're bringing back a lot of first deal jitters memories for our best ever listeners. Your first deal, whether it's your personal residence your first investment property, that's a big deal. Ross, you're from Michigan, you live in Florida. Why did you pick Indiana? We touched on it early, but it was buried entry and it was cash flow. I've never been a big fan of buying for appreciation. Now people have done it, obviously in the Sun Coast and where we live down here in the Sun Belt. Florida has been a hot center for investing for a long time, but good luck finding cash flow these days. So I wanted to invest for cash flow, and if it appreciated, great. So that was always just my belief. And most areas in the Midwest could provide that. I had some friends who I met over the years investigating in real estate and they were doing Indiana. So I had a leg up on just learning a little bit about the market from them and ultimately made us feel comfortable. Another benefit of Indiana post COVID is just like we had New York people moving to Florida, California people moving to Arizona and Texas, Illinois people are getting the hell out and moving to Indiana. So those northwestern suburbs near Chicago are on fire, right? Yeah. Michigan City, going to Mishawaka, all those areas up there have been really, really hot. Yeah, that's a great point. And that wasn't three years ago when we started. But like you said, as COVID came and slowly exited, per se, yeah, it's became fire for sure. Is this your full-time gig now or do you still have a sales role? Up until March, I was the vice president of a large software company. So I'm a big believer of not exiting your main income until you feel incredibly comfortable with what you're doing. So at that point in time, when I exited, we owned about 500 rental units at the time, and I did about 25 flips a year. 
So I felt uber, uber comfortable exiting that large paying W2 job into this full time. But for the last almost nine months, I've done real estate full time. Yeah, that's a good point. You see a lot of social media posts where people will tell you, don't be afraid of taking big risks, go for it, follow your dreams. Listen, if you got a good W2, relax, do this as a side hustle. When you're running out of time where there's no more time in the day where you can look for deals or manage your properties, consider the options of hiring an assistant or quitting your W2. If you've got a high paying W2 gig, don't make drastic decisions. Do it calculated is my opinion. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I couldn't have said it any better. The social media world and even some of these guests that we've had on podcasts or you've seen on other podcasts, a lot of these people are like, man, I wish I did it when I was 22 years old, blah, blah, blah. I wish I stopped working 10 years ago. I don't wish any of that, actually. To be honest with you, my path was perfect for us. We were able to pay off all our debt. We were able to live in, I would say, a house that most people dream of because we weren't taking huge risk early. And now when we were able to, we were able to put the pedal down and really scale. So you're right. My opinion is exactly yours. Tune it out. If you can do both, do it as long as you can to the very last second. That's ultimately, my wife said, you're burning the candle at both ends. You need to pick one. Yeah. Let the circumstances dictate when you quit your W-2. Good. Josh, you bought your four unit. I'm assuming it's cash flowing well. Did you do any renovations to it? That was a pretty turnkey one. Just minor turns. Eventually we did a roof, but I would say in our world now, we would call it pretty turnkey. All right. So you've got that thing cash flowing. What's your next step? Yeah. So when I say cash flow, we're buying a Chipotle burrito every month off of it. We're not getting rich by any means, but that was right in COVID. So like a lot of us who have been investing and, and listening to the show, we had some time to dedicate to this kind of stuff. So we did as well. So that summer we decided, let's try another one. And that's when we started learning about off-market deals, wholesalers, that whole genre. We dabbled a little bit in it, but we decided we were going to take the bull by the horns and we were going to go find our own properties and negotiate our own deals. So in that time frame, I learned about credit unions and localized banks. And this is where the power of cash out refi came into play for us personally. And we found local lenders that would allow us to buy a property cash, turn around that same month, go get an appraisal, get a loan on it for what it appraised for, not what we bought it for instantaneously. No seizing period, no nothing. So we knew we wanted to buy a property that we felt like was valued at 100. We wanted to buy it for 75. Right? So we can buy it cash, get our money right back out. And so that's when the light bulb officially went off on the small multifamily. And we grew that portfolio over the course of 12 months just by rinsing and repeating our money through our HELOC and also our 401k loans to about a, just over 100 units. So we scaled very, very quickly between 2020 and 2021. I want to stop you for a second. You earlier mentioned you paid off all of your debt. And now I hear you're taking out 401k loans. What is your philosophy on debt? When I say debt, my wife has her doctorate and she's a doctor of audiology. So she had quite a bit of student loan debts. So we paid that type of debt off. What we didn't pay off is I had a company car. So we only had one car and we leased it because she never drove. So that's low debt. And we had a house payment. Essentially, we had no other debt. So all other debt was done. I'm a huge belief in leverage. Actually, I have a huge belief in leverage, but the right type of leverage. If I'm taking money that I have to pay 5% on, but I can make 15% on, that's a net 10%. I love that type of debt. That's the type of debt where I can velocitize our money that I'm into. 
Yeah. For a lot of the best ever listeners that struggle with how much leverage, how much debt, my simple answer is don't ever get over leveraged. Borrow as much as you can for as long as you can, but have enough cushion, enough runway. Never get to the point where you're over leveraged. Very simple, right? Uh, there, there's no magic formula. It's just within your comfort zone, do some risk assessments, anticipate economic headwinds staying with us for quite some time and make sure you've got enough cushion. Pretty simple, right? Yeah, I think we see a lot of flash in the pans of people who don't do that, where you'll talk to somebody and they said, oh, well, I bought two properties or I bought three properties over the years and they went horribly and I sold them and I took a bath. It's because one, they probably didn't treat them like a business. They treated it like a hobby, first and foremost. And then second, they probably didn't have the reserves and all the other things, the cushion is to use your word and runway that they needed. If you do those blocking and tackling things like you just mentioned, then generally you're fine. Ross, tell us about the benefits of using credit unions or smaller banks. One, they're just easy accessibility. I could call and talk to the vice president of commercial lending today without ever having an appointment or talking to him before. So just the accessibility is a big thing. It becomes more of a personal relationship, but their terms are so much different. So generally we're going to get 80% loan to value, even in today's market, which is getting a lot more, I would say stringent. And you're going to get usually 12 to 18 months of IO, maybe even 24 of interest only, I should say. So you're paying only interest for that time as you ramp up the property. And you're almost always going to get at least a 25-year amortization with a five-year term. So they're very flexible on term. And as you build that rapport, it becomes even more flexible. Most likely, there's no prepayment penalties and things like that as well. So for us, as we continue to grow, we had certain banks that were really good at small multifamily, credit unions and local banks. And then we found others when we moved into the larger apartment complexes that specialized in that. So there's also two different types of banks, even within that. So there's ones that are kind of used to the smaller purchases, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then there's the larger credit unions and local banks that are used to the five, 10, $15 million purchases. But either way, if you haven't gone out and investigated the area that you're going to buy in those local banks, then you're missing out probably the best leverage you can get. And some of the best deals you'll find is find the closest small bank to that property. If the property's in their backyard, they're a lot more aggressive. Great point. Good. Okay. So you said you started hitting it hard after your first four unit. What was your next deal? Yeah. So next deal was two duplexes. So that kind of got us that quick eight mark. And then we were really buying three, four, five deals a month. It was as many as we could find we were buying. So as kind of part of that, what we would find, because we were targeting a lot of off-market sellers is we became also the mecca of finding single families <laughs> just happens. Guys got duplex also has three single family houses. We didn't buy single family. Like most people, we had a type of property we were looking for and it wasn't single families. So I started to wholesale a few of those, but what I learned very quickly was I'd sell this to a flipper and they'd go make anywhere from 25 to $40,000 in some of these small tertiary market flips. I was like, I feel like I could do that out of Florida in Indiana. Like, can't be that hard. <laughs> so I decided to try one. And like most people, you get taken a little bit of advantage of for not being there. So the first contractor didn't work out, but we made really good money on it still. And then we ended up finding a really good contractor team that has 12 people on staff. And so they're not per se on my payroll, but at this point in time, 99% of the work comes through us. 
So we also moved into that same period as we're growing into, I call it accidental flipper. So we do about 25 to 30 flips a year, along with that small multi-family portfolio. That whole story right there takes us up to about January, 2022. How are you funding all of these deals? You're buying three to five deals per month. How are you not running out of capital? $50,000 loan from two 401k, so there's a hundred grand. We were able to take $250,000 out of a HELOC, so that's $350,000. In tertiary markets, particularly in the Midwest, a lot of times you're buying a duplex for 60, 65, 70, in that range, maybe a little bit more, maybe a couple bucks less. So you can buy quite a bit of that pretty quickly. So we were able to buy it, and I would already have a relationship with the bank, like we were talking about VP of commercial lending, I'd send them all the underwriting, I'd send them the purchase agreement, any information leases that they needed, and I would refi that property almost within four weeks from the purchase date. So I was able to rinse and repeat $350,000 almost 12 times that year. So, so now it really had to go out and find a lot of money. Yeah, you've got some good cash flow coming in and going out. What was your next multifamily purchase? That took us to January, 2022. And there was a lot of small multifamilies and we gravitated and grew to larger stuff, but really our next fork in the road. I mean, the story happens all the time. Anytime you talk to somebody, Ash, but we wanted to grow faster and bigger and scale more efficiently. So a good buddy of my now my partner, Stan Remling, who's a neighbor of mine, a couple blocks over, we were having a beer one night and same conversation. He was dabbling in some real estate. And he says, how do we do this? So we started following the deal that month, just as an investing company for me and him. It was just gonna be a JV partnership, nothing more, nothing less. And we spent the next really three to six months doing a little bit of small multifamily still, but most of our energy went towards broker relations, trying to direct to seller marketing, really building a foundation of that company. And finally in May, a light bulb went off after having dinner with some friends. And because we worked in W2 jobs, he works for Disney. We have a lot of high performing net worth people around us who always ask what we did, asked about real estate and we'd have deja vu conversations with them. Next Friday, we'd have the same one. They'd be like, teach me everything you know, Ash. And you'd tell them and next Friday, they'd ask you the same thing and they'd never do anything. So one day my buddy Ryan's like, man, how about this? And we've had five or six drinks at the time. He's like, hey man, how about you get 12 to 14? Yeah, exactly, maybe 12 (laughs) to 15. So we're feeling pretty good and he says, how about I just give you a hundred thousand dollars and you just do this for me? I'm never going to do this. You asked earlier about raising capital and things. That was the first time raising capital became even an idea. So we started researching group investing companies, syndication companies, read all the books that obviously from your guys's group and, and others. And we decided at that point in time, it was going to become a syndication or group investing company, mostly just friends and family, close network. And in June, 2022, we got our first larger multifamily deal, which was a 31 unit property. But from that moment to now, we've been very, very focused on 20 to 150 unit apartment complexes. And even with the market, the way it's been, we've acquired 15 properties in a little over what's called 15 months. Is that the last 15 months? Yes. The last 15 months. So we, we grew Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. wait a minute. In 15 months, you found how many deals? We did 15 deals, all ranges of size. The largest was 129 unit property. Smallest was a 15 unit property. 
And we added about 600 total units to our portfolio in the last 15 months. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Do you want to do bigger and better commercial real estate deals? Take your real estate capital raising efforts to new heights with syndicationattorneys.com. With more than 20 years of real estate and investing experience, syndicationattorneys.com goes beyond just creating legal documents. They educate you on ethical and legal capital raising strategies. Plus, they offer a host of free resources, including their best-selling capital raising books, numerous articles, and their popular podcast, Raise Private Money Legally. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more, more deals, bigger deals, and better deals. So if you want attorneys with premier experience helping syndicators and fund managers raise capital, go to syndicationattorneys.com today to schedule an appointment and unlock your maximum capital raising potential today. That's syndicationattorneys.com. This offer is not available to Florida residents. Now, what's your answer to everyone that says there's no good deals out there? There's not a lot. <laughs> I mean, 15 out of however many traded, but there are. One, you have to stick to your guns a little bit first and foremost, and you have to underwrite and look and work to get those deals. If you're sitting back waiting for Ash Patel, the broker, to call you with this great, fantastic deal that's a home run, it's not going to happen. You have to literally run this acquisitions like a sales cycle in corporate sales America. You have to call these people. You have to go find your own deals sometimes. And sometimes you have to get very creative on how to even structure a deal to make it ultimately get done. And so we figured out early and often, and honestly, some of our best deals, the first look at them, we turned them down. And then we continue to stay in touch with them as they would fall out of contract. We'd get creative on how we'd structure it and we're able to get it done. Now we look back and we're like, we wish we had 30 of those deals. So it takes a lot of work. And again, you know that better than anybody. There's deals out there. You just certainly have to work for them. It's not easy anymore. Russ, when you were offered that first $100,000 check, was there a mindset struggle on whether you should take other people's money or just keep doing what you're doing? Yeah, very much so. There's a few moments in my investing career and really in life where you think back and you're like, is this the right thing to do? Because these are really good friends and family. One of the proudest moments I ever had was when my mom said, I would like to give you $100,000. We have to pull from our retirement fund. I don't want sin in the market anymore. That was like the proudest moment ever because that meant she believed in us too. <laughs> but that first one, it was, it was a battle. It was a devil and angel on both sides. And I think ultimately, if you know what you're doing and you're cautious and you look at pros and cons in every deal and you can live with the con and the pros are awesome, 
then you should feel confident taking somebody else's money like it was your own. But you need to treat it like it's your own. I think there's a wild, wild west people out there right now. And we've seen them all. They're all on social media. And it's scary. But for me, I felt good about that because of the way we were being conservative and operating. Ross, you're a corporate sales guy. Explain to me what your sales cycle is with your real estate investing, please. Okay. So I have a list of really what I call core brokers and each one I generally meet with at least two to four times a month. I'll call it about 10 to 12 brokers total. And we go through their pipelines of what they're bringing to market and what they have either off market, touch base with somebody, got a rent roll. And we go one by one to see what those really look like. And if we want to pursue it heavily. Some they have to bring the market, like it's just in the best interest for the seller and it's in the best interest for them, which I totally understand, but I try to get in front of them early and often, but we literally do pipeline analysis with 10 to 12 brokers every month. And from that point, it might be early in their conversation. And if it is that same property that maybe piques our interest is brought up on the next call and the following call all the way to it's a yes or a no from us, whether we want to pursue it. And to be clear, these are not emails. These are phone calls. These are phone calls. Yes. The reason why we get that level of attention, and there's a lot of people who are listening to this right now, probably do something similar or some form of that, is because that first deal, which is a whole nother story for a different day, first followed the investment deal, was when you prove yourself to a broker that you're a good buyer and you do what you say and you're relatively easy to work with, who do you think they want to sell the property to? They want to sell it to you. So they're willing to take out 30 minutes, two or three, four times a month to go through that because they would prefer you buy it or someone like you buy it. So they're willing to dedicate that time. If we were a huge giant pain in the ass, we would not get that time. We just want it. So I think a lot of people don't understand that you have to be a great buyer and do what you say and then execute. If you actually get a deal under LOI and purchase agreement, that earns your stripes and that gets you more deal flow. And that one first deal is one of the many reasons why we got to 15 in 15 months. Russ, what does your team look like today? I just talked to somebody who's in the same industry as us in real estate investing, has a syndication company, and we're talking about personnel, people, which is by far the hardest part of this business and really any business. So I think there's a lot of people who go out very early and try to build a company zero to 60. Everything from, I want a marketing person, I want an accounting bookkeeper, I want this, I want that. And they did acquisitions, asset managers, all that. Literally, it was me and Stan. That was it. I did all the bookkeeping. I did acquisitions. Stan did a lot of the marketing stuff for us. I had a good friend who owns an internet marketing company in real estate, actually. And so he helped us out with a lot of that, just kind of pro bono or small fees. So that kind of helped with some branding. But early on, it was literally us until about three months ago when we finally hired a CFO, which was an absolute game changer. So this entire time, it was my wife helping, my buddy Stan and partner and me up until three months ago. A first hire is rarely a CFO. Why did you choose that? Well, hire where you're weak, right? I'm pretty good at financial analysis, underwriting, but really P&L, bookkeeping, forecasting, that is incredibly detail-oriented work. And if you screw it up, it literally screws up everything going forward. So that for me, she was a friend. I've known her for years, 15 years. I'm good friends with her brother. 
And she worked for a hedge fund company on Boca Raton. And she was looking for a way to start investing with us. So she did. And that's how we got talking about the CFO role. And no joke, that was the most time consuming thing I did as well. So not only am I not great at it, it's very heavy lift for me, which means you don't want to do it. So you put it off and then you finally do, and you're probably doing it quicker than you should. Having her take that over, I was able to go back to the things that not how I was able to go back to the things that I was really good at, which was acquisitions. That's really my forte and a lot of things that I do. So every hour I spent on the accounting side, I gave up and replaced it now with acquisitions and broker relations and all the other micro jobs that we could have. I bet the lenders love the fact that you have a CFO on your team. Yeah, it just sounds cool, right? <laughs> well, look, not only does it sound cool, but if that's the point person that they interact with, they always get clean financials, they get future projections. That's incredible. How yeah. many hours a week does the CFO put in? It's kind of interesting. She probably only does about 20 to 25 hours a week today. One, she's very good at what she does. So what she does in 25 hours probably takes somebody with less skill set 40. So she's really effective. And we're actually investing in a water park. Actually, you might even know it in Old Forge, New York. So we're in the midst of closing on that in a couple of weeks, a family fund center water park. And she's going to take on the CFO job for that too. So she's going to split her time. So it's kind of nice. Now she has a really well-rounded full position, but you don't always have to hire somebody at 40 hours a week. And I think that's something that maybe a lot of entrepreneurs always gravitate to. There's so many people that just want some flexibility, make some extra money, be involved in a cool startup company her willing to put in 15, 20, 25 hours. And that's exactly what this was. And she was a perfect hire for it. I'm going to table the water park question. Yeah, that's a whole the next episode. time that we have you on here, we'll get to the bottom of that one. But look, you've had an incredible run, even in this market, when a lot of your competitors are sitting on the sidelines, you guys are crushing it. Russ, if you look back, what's something that you wish you did differently that would have put you in a better position today? Man, that was tough. No one's actually asked me that before doing these podcasts. I don't have a great answer. And I think part of it is when things go bad in the moment, they're awful. They're very, very painful. Like we've been stolen from by two different flipping crews and two rental crews to the tune of like probably $60,000, $70,000 over the years. It happens. Super painful in the moment. But now it's caused is we have very stringent processes on how we inspect each project and we how we set expectations up front with the contractor. So do I wish that didn't happen? Yeah, I wish I had my $70,000 back, absolutely. But would I be as good of a hands-on operator as I am today? Probably not. So I don't think I would change anything. I think it's a programming. So people who do programming and software use this term, but essentially you wanna fail fast. So I'm glad those lessons and those hardships, things that I wish maybe I did differently, happened very early. So when we got bigger and where we're scaling to this point, we're better operators. So I'm glad we've made mistakes early so we're better now with the big stuff. Ross, let's rephrase that question. What do you think you could have done differently in terms of hiring or building out your team sooner to put you in a better position today? Honestly, there's really only one and I hired and found a really good CPA. So our CFO is not our tax strategist. They are different people. So our CPA and tax strategist, I used a couple early on for the first year and a half or two years. 
And they were good quote unquote CPAs, but they weren't real estate tax strategists. And I feel like if I found that person and made a move a little quicker to somebody that's really aligned to us, it would have helped us realize the benefits of real estate faster. And I think that's one of the ones that that's a third party hire. They're not paid by me per se on my payroll, but that's a partner that is so crucial to have that people cheap out on. We're going into tax season coming up. And if you don't have somebody that you can literally text right now and ask them a tax strategy question and get a really great answer back immediately, you got to find somebody else because that's the type of partner. If you're going to do real estate that you need. I'll share a quick story with you. And that resonates with me a lot. And I'm sure with our best ever listeners, what you said is so important. That's one of the most valuable people you will align with is your CPA. There was a local CPA who was killing it in real estate, but he was overwhelmed. He was not taking on new clients. So we're out at a happy hour, probably six beers deep. And I said, why not focus on your top clients and get rid of your bottom 80%, charge them whatever you want. I said, people like me, I don't care what you charge me. I'll pay whatever. I won't even look at the bill. I just want the best advice because I know you'll save me money. He ended up doing that and I got on with him. I know he charges me through the roof. I could care less because already it's a ridiculous amount of savings. So best ever listeners, align yourself with the right real estate specific CPA. Ross, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. All right. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I give this one often, but if you're going to get involved in real estate or anything, there's a statistic that 62% of earners that make over hundred thousand dollars a year have a side hustle, whatever your side hustle or main thing that you're trying to do, you got to treat this thing like a business. It doesn't mean overcomplicated. There's two different things. Treating it like a business doesn't mean it has to be complicated, but you have to treat it like a business. And that means having some form of accounting and tracking software, having a specific email set up, basic things to keep yourself organized like a business. And so many people jump in, treat it like a hobby. And guess what? There's a saying, if you treat it like a hobby, it's gonna pay you like a hobby. If you treat it like a job, it's gonna pay you like a job. So treat it like a job in a business and it will definitely make your life a hell of a lot easier and it'll help you scale in the long run. Amazing advice. Ross, what's the best ever book you recently read? I had to write it down because I always screw it up, but actually the guy who said, I'd give you a hundred thousand dollars and go invest with you, he suggested it. So it's called The Gap in the Game. It's one of Dan Sullivan's books, which I've read Who Not How before, and I actually wasn't even familiar with this book, but I talk a lot about envy and the podcast world, social media world. I mean, you have guests on here that honestly, I listen to you as a host. You listen to people and you're like, wow, like they're really good at this. You become envious and you don't really appreciate where you've come or even your kids like in parenting. Like, wow, my kid started at A and he went to B and then to C. Yeah, he hasn't made it to Z yet. He hasn't gone the full way, but look how far he came. So I think it's a little bit of a long book, but there's so many stories in there as parents, as husbands, and as entrepreneurs that you can relate to, to really live in the game and appreciate where you started, where you're going and where you've been and where you're ultimately going. Ross, what's the best ever way you like to give back? My wife's uncle is mentally challenged. I don't know what the proper word is. So he's in his 50s, 60s. He lives at an assisted community home. And this time of year, we like to really go. The kids make up these goodie bags 
for all the residents and there's like things like lip balm, lotion, you know, day-to-day things. They create these little gift bags for them. And during their lunch hour or dinner hour, we'll go and we did it last weekend actually. And they'll go to each table. And again, a four and a half year old and an eight year old, what grandparent or 70 or 80 year old doesn't love to see a little kid around the holidays. And they go to each table and they talk to them and they drop off the bags. And if you have assisted living home in your area and you got kids, go do that. I don't even hand them out. I just sit there and watch. I let them do it all. It's the most gratifying thing you can do, especially this time of year. And Ross, what's the best way for our best ever listeners to reach out to you? If you want to reach out to our group as a whole, obviously our website, followthedeal.com. If you want to reach out to me, I am awful on social media. So I'm not on Instagram, TikTok. Uh, I have a Facebook account, but really LinkedIn. I do thrive on LinkedIn. I think it's one of the best platforms for people like us, investors or entrepreneurs to connect to people. So definitely find me there. I try to be super accessible like you are as well. So feel free to reach out accordingly. Ross, I got to thank you for your time today. You've killed it in a very short amount of time. 15 deals in the last 15 months. Thank you for sharing all of your great lessons with us. Thanks, Ash. Pleasure meeting you too. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.